This is the Soil Sense podcast where we believe that building healthier soils is not just a prescription, but rather a pursuit. It's a journey that requires collaboration, curiosity, and communication among farmers, researchers, agronomists, consultants, and extension. You're going to hear their stories and discover how and why they're working together to make sense out of what's happening in the soil. Hey there, thanks for joining us for another episode of Soil Sense. I'm your host, Tim Hamrich. Now, we often talk on this show about corn and soybeans and small grains, but those are far from the only crops focused on improving soil health. Today's episode is a unique look at sugar beets and what sugar beet farmers in the Red River Valley are doing to improve their soil health. Joining me today is Dan Vogley. Dan is a senior agronomist for American Crystal Sugar in the northern part of the Red River Valley along the Minnesota-North Dakota border. Dan also grew up on a sugar beet farm near Halleck, Minnesota, so he's been involved in really every aspect of producing this interesting crop. Dan and I discuss what's unique about sugar beets, how soil health building practices have changed over time, and how they're using techniques like nurse crops and strip tillage to build healthier soils while still maximizing their revenue per acre. First, though, I asked Dan to set the scene for us a little bit by describing what makes the Red River Valley such an ideal place to grow sugar beets. Over 11 million tons are harvested from the region every year, making it the number one area for the crop in the country. Dan says the combination of the soil and climate in the area are to thank for their success, but also can present their own soil health challenges. The heavier clay soils, it's a high CEC soil. For those of you that aren't from around here, the soil is black as the ace of spades, and when it gets wet, it's called gumbo, and uh, it will stick to you, not unlike the soil makeup of some of the soils out in eastern Oregon. Very sticky and slimy, but when it dries out, it's especially suited for sugar beets. And part of what uh, keeps the sugar beets here and makes us a, a sugar beet growing area is the same thing that keeps our retired people going south to Arizona, is climate. We need cold weather. We put millions of tons into piles. We spend millions of dollars cooling them down. We have fans that blow air into them so we can cool them down so we can freeze them, and then we take them out and process them. And by freezing them and processing them and putting them in sheds, we actually can extend our processing time out into April and May and sometimes June without having to plant more acres to get those tons. We can do a better job with our yields and sugar, and we raise some of the highest percent sugar in the world up here. It's just because of the climate and the soil. So you'll curse it when you're harvesting them and you got your quad track hooked up to your semi dragging it through to almost the frame to get it out of the field when it gets wet and when it's hard it will have cracks that you'll be able to drop a crescent wrench on and never be able to find it again. So that's the challenge of even when you're doing sustainability that's the way these crops are. That's the way these soils are. It's Glacial Lake Agassiz is what formed the Red River Valley, and it scraped everything loose, and it is a lake bed, and it's made to hold water. We do a very good job trying to manage it. And that is why sometimes no-till doesn't work the best up here, because one of the best things about no-till is it holds moisture. Well, if moisture is your number one limiting factor, and I hate to say that after this year, because we went through a terrible drought up here, for 20 years we've had too much moisture. 
up here with the runoff and the rains and all that stuff. Lots of drain tile have gone in. That's why the infiltration tests and being able to get your carbon to be able to hold that water and hold it in a way that you can actually steal traffic and drive on your field, that's a huge game changer. Being able to measure that now is is a big deal. And not only are there these unique challenges and opportunities with the type of soil that sugar beets grow in, but the crop itself is also quite a bit different than growing a lot of the other Midwestern row crops. Sugar beets are pretty susceptible to disease. We have to do a, a really good job, uh, not only a, a soil-borne disease like Rhizoc or Anomyces, there's also the leaves, like we'll canopy and we'll cover 100% of the field and then we don't do anything with those leaves when we harvest them all those leaves go back down into the ground it's basically a green manure when we're done harvesting them very micro friendly very digestible i think it's 20 to 1 carbon nitrogen ratio it's a fantastic soil builder in fact that's part of the problem we have with sugar beets is that the microbes digest the leaves and everything so fast that there's not a whole lot left in the spring at least in the first half inch of soil, for the microbes to eat. So that's where sometimes sugar beets get the uh, a bad rap for wind blowing and soil moving. And it's not the sugar beets' fault, it's the tillage that ends up doing it after that. Uh, that's where you pay attention to rotation. That's where when your mindset changes and you're really thinking about sustainability, that's where there's some crops that you might not follow up, or if you're going to follow it up with it, you're planning for those crops like edible beans or soybeans coming in after sugar beets. Those are two very low residue crops when you're done with it, but you got to do with a plan. One of the other things about sugar beets is we harvest about, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that we harvest about 80% of the actual sugar beet when we pull it out in the main root. The other 20% is root hairs that are left in the ground that are going for eight feet in all directions. And those root hairs will digest and leave microfissures for water to go down to, for infiltration, for earthworms, bacteria absolutely love sugar beets. We can't get it all when we harvest without some incredible soil disturbance. Keep in mind that Soil disturbance is one of the things that uh, we have to do in, in sugar beets. We lift them out of the ground and leave a six-inch trench in there. What we do is the soil is undisturbed in those 22 inches between the rows, and then it's majorly disturbed in between. That's why we're doing the research in strip-till to see how that works, how that is changing. But even just the way the rows are planted makes a big difference with prevailing winds and stuff like that. But it's... One of those crops that could really, really play a big role in sustainability if we could just find where it fits and nuance your, your fields and your crops to it. We're definitely going to talk a lot more about the strip tillage experiments a bit later in today's episode, but hopefully that at least gives you some good context about sugar beets and soil health. For Dan, who's been around sugar beet production since he was a kid, I wondered what has changed in terms of practices that might help facilitate healthier soils without giving up profit per acre. By far, Roundup, the Roundup technology has, uh, it, it's helped increase our soil health. And I know some people will be freaking out over that. But in the old days, 
I can remember helping my dad, I was probably 10, mix chemical so he could spray sugar beets and band spray it. Because if you wanted to go see your dad, you went out to the field and you rode in the tractor with them. And we band sprayed many different times with micro rates every five days apart. And if we weren't band spraying, we were in the field cultivating, tilling the ground up in between. We cultivated two, three times a year until we had rope canopy closure to keep the weeds out because a sugar beet, it loves companion crops, but it steal moisture and sunshine from that. So with the advent of Roundup and Roundup Ready technology, the number of chemicals that we've started spraying on sugar beets has dropped drastically. We still have to do some nuancing because there are resistant weeds that are coming up and that's just natural selection. And we're doing a lot better job of that. And cover crops, we couldn't do some of the things we do with cover crops without Roundup on that. And I think there sometimes is too much of a good thing. It does end up getting overused when we fall back on our laurels and say we don't have to think about new and exciting technologies because Roundup is still the cheapest thing we can do. Uh, we're having to mix things and, and do tank mixes, which we should have done a long time ago to keep track of this stuff. But over and all, that's one of the bigger things that sustainability is, has helped. And then the other thing that's really helping right now is the planter technology with furrow force and down pressure. I had some sugar beets that were planted into a rye field that was almost knee high. And he went in there and he used a um, minimum tillage disc to chop the rye up. And then he came in there with his planter and he actually moved and made enough of a, a row about three, four inches on either side of the sugar beet trench to make it black and give that sugar beet coming up a beautiful spot to grow. And then there it was green in the middle and we didn't have to worry about wind. Sugar beets are, when they come up, the cotyledons are shaped like helicopter blades. So when you get wind, wind will twist them out of the ground. So we've worried about wind erosion since we started with sugar beets. Blowing out used to be a big, big problem. I would say probably 70% of my area plants a uh, cover crop or a nurse crop along with the sugar beets, which is wheat, which we can come back through after the wheat comes up and is made to protect the sugar beet from being blown out. And then we come back through and we spray the wheat out when we spray the other weeds. So that's been a recognized practice for 20 years right now. It's just not a cover crop in the conventional sense of the word cover crop, which it doesn't quite fit in and check the boxes like everybody wants to check the box, but it's a start. It's a place to start a good conversation with a guy because they're all having success with that. This term nurse crop hasn't really come up much on the podcast before that I can recall at least. I asked Dan if he can explain how sugar beet farmers are using wheat as a nurse crop and why. So we try and get in as early as possible with sugar beets because they're a tough plant. So they'll be one of the first things seeded. One of the things we like to see is a stale seed bed so we don't have to use tillage. That's an option for us. Uh, right away in the spring, we know a lot of our soil loss comes from wind blowing in the spring. One of the practices that we do is stale seed bedding. So we'll plant as early as we can. And if Mother Nature lets us, it's usually the second part of April and we'll get the, the seed in the ground. And the seed is tough. It'll lay in the ground 
until it gets the right moisture and then it will germinate. So that's April into May. We'll have a cover crop planted at the same time. Sugar beet's like a firm seed bed, so they'll go in there with a drill or a spreader and plant wheat and then come in and plant sugar beets right into where they've planted the wheat. And sometimes they skip strips, sometimes they plant the whole way, sometimes they have an airplane spread it to get in there and they'll work it in when they're getting ready to plant the sugar beets. And then about the end of May, the beginning of June, usually about, we call it six leaf stage and sugar beets, we'll come in there and we'll want to be able to spray that cover crop out because it's done its job. The beets is significantly rooted into the ground and we don't have to worry about them blowing out. And we'll come through and we'll spray those out when we spray all the other weeds out. And the cover crop has done its job what we've wanted it to do. One important thing to know about sugar beet growers is that they're paid on sugar content. So Dan says they're trying to maximize revenue per acre, which doesn't always necessarily mean yield per acre. Sugar beets are expensive to raise. Sugar beets are expensive to harvest. And the whole name of the game is being able to get your revenue per acre up. And that's your sugar percentage and that's your tonnage revenue per acre it's it's yield but not even yield because they get paid on the sugar that they produce as being a part of a cooperative so it does you no good to raise a 50 ton crop and put down a lot of nitrogen if your sugar percentage is 12 and 13 percent sugar you actually can get paid better to raise a 28 ton crop and have 20 percent sugar so it's all about managing that and nuancing that and we do enough record keeping where we can figure that out in the company we we have reports that go out that's part of my job is to record sprays and to record soil tests and fungicides and all that we have a fairly robust situation where if somebody says i want to try strip till i can do a sort and figure out what our yields are with strip till so that's part of getting us to move the needle is I can do a search on the last 20 years of crop and we'll tell you if those practices have on average worked for us. Although Dan says just knowing what happens on average isn't really enough to help farmers, it is valuable to know when practices work and when they don't. Strip tillage is one practice that does seem to be working in a lot of scenarios, although not all for sugar beet growers. Dan says some are even starting to explore the possibility of biostrips, which we've talked about in previous episodes of this podcast. All research should have this preface underneath it. It is better to be lucky than good. Because when you go into something that does in a one year or a one season, you'll be a hero or a zero. This year's strip till was, on some of our fields, strip till was fantastic. Big yield differences. But the difference is lack of rain. I mean, like I said before, sometimes we don't struggle with a lack of rain. But we proved strip till can be very beneficial in certain applications. One of the things I'm talking about strip till is guys want to do whole fields. And I say, look at your yield map for wheat or for soybeans, pick out that red spot that didn't yield as well. And maybe that's a good spot to put in strips, you know, put 40 acres of a 160 acre field, put that into strips and start there. The strips that I have dealt with, we're in a project with Walsh County, Three Rivers Watershed District and NDSU and uh, U of M and General Mills is mixed in with that. And we're doing some research spots side by side, proof of concept, 40 acres of 
soil health practices against 40 acres of conventional field split. So you have an 80-acre field and it's split side by side, and we've been all over the board. We're spread out throughout all of Walsh County in the heavy ground, up in the lighter ground. And this year, the stuff on the lighter ground was up five weeks before the conventional side was. So that was five weeks worth of growth, which I don't know if it was good or bad because in that five weeks of North Dakota springtime, we hit 98 once and we hit 103 once and then we hit freezing once on Mother's Day of frost. So all that was before we really got enough rain to get the other side started. So the conventional sat there all nestled in the soil waiting for the rain to come up and the conventional by stand count looked a lot better than the strip till. The strip till was beat up, but sugar beets, they'll take advantage of whatever area, whatever growth you'll give them. And it, it worked out on that particular plot. It came out better on other plots. Strip tilling didn't come out as good because moisture was a limiting factor. So more research is needed. More cooperation is needed. More areas are needed because that's where we find out where this stuff really works. As I'm sure you're able to tell, Dan is not only a huge advocate for science and research, but also for pursuing these sustainable practices. Just like in this strip till example, he believes it's important to share both the successes and the failures. That way, farmers, agronomists, extension, researchers, and consultants can all support each other through the challenges. There's going to be a few truths that hold through on strip till and sugar beets. Our job is to find out not so much where it works, but where it doesn't work. And that's the same with all the stuff that's coming out right now. Strip till, no-till, cover crops, double cropping. The value is in the failures, not the successes. Because you give people a successful thing, they'll run out and shout it from the rooftops, but they might leave out that we had one of the driest summers in the last 25 years up in this area. So yeah, it was a gigantic success if you look at it on that part, but let's look at it for the next couple of years and see where you you shouldn't be doing it. And that's that's our job as agronomists, egg researchers, NDSU, U of M, all those people is once you convince everybody to do it, now you got to convince everybody that it might not be such a good idea where you want to do it. Let's set you up for success. In sustainability, soil health, and that situation, we give you all the tools that you're supposed to have. And uh, it's a lot like starting a kid out on the top of the hill with a bike. And we give you the helmet, we give you the bike, we tell you how to pedal it, and then we stand up at the top of the hill and push you down and we say, just keep pedaling faster. But there's nobody running beside you that's going to pick you up when you wipe out halfway down and that's when a farmer says, I got too much to risk. I can't do this. I'm out. Well, that's where you need a crop consultant to come in beside you and say, you know, maybe this is why it didn't work. And maybe we should try something different. But what was a good part of that? Where do you see things that would help out in that? And that's, I mean, this is something that sustainability and all that is starting to come down from a national, a world level right now. That's one of the big gaps I see is there's nobody there to pick up these guys when they wipe up 10 feet down from the top of the hill and say, you know what, I'll go beside you and I'll help you until you get going. And as soon as you feel good, I'll be at the bottom of the hill to help you out. And uh, then I'll tell you that you don't have to learn how to ride bike on the biggest, tallest hill. You can ride bike down here where you feel comfortable. 
that's a big problem in agriculture right now because right now everybody's selling that it can work it will work because that's all everybody says is it, it just won't work around here well with a few tweaks it could work but we got to have people that are there for the wrecks that are will be able to pick people up it's no different in sugar beets we have an advantage up here because we're incredibly diverse in our crops in my area i've got potatoes i've got sugar beets i've got corn i've got edible beans i've got soybeans i've got barley there's oats grown here there's rye is starting to be grown here because it's become a very valuable cover crop all that and then being able to find where the sustainability part that's where sustainability is a commitment it's not so much a set of rules but it's a commitment if somebody looks at it and and says well you know for my microbes and my soil off maybe i shouldn't work this up but if you know till three years out of four and then you have to till to put your sugar beets in i would say that's a win you know because before you were tilling three years every year well now if we have to strip till to do a decent soy seed bed for sugar beets that's still a win it's the all or nothing mentality that i'm i have to battle against so it's the nuance every person is nuanced every farm is nuanced i'm seeing a definite trend for me and for everybody else is how can the whole idea of sustainability infiltrate into our farms where we're not going to be laughed out of the cafe if we put in a pollinator strip on our worst producing area of our field little tiny things that we can do every farmer can do something and that's taking the stigma away from it well that's part of my life ethic is what it is Thanks so much to Dan Vogley for being on the show today. I really enjoyed that look into sugar beets and even more importantly, this nuanced view of how we pursue these sustainable soil health building practices. Thanks as well to our sponsors of Soil Sense, the North Central Sustainable Agriculture Research and Education Program, the North Dakota Corn Council, the North Dakota Wheat Commission, the North Dakota Soybean Council, the North Harvest Dry Bean Association, the North Dakota Barley Council, and Anheuser-Busch. If you're getting value from this podcast, please leave us a rating and review on iTunes or wherever you listen. And be sure to share your favorite episodes on social media using the hashtag SoilSense. We're going to take a little break for the holidays, but we'll be back in January with another great episode.